Welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of eSharp magazine. Go to eSharp.eu for free access to all our podcasts to date. This is Paul Adamson, and I'm in conversation with Luke Van Middelaar. Luke Van Middelaar is a political theorist and historian and the author of the new book, Alarums and Excursions, a groundbreaking account of the European Union's crisis politics. And this conversation was recorded in front of an audience at the recent eSharp Live conference in Brussels. Um, it's my very great pleasure to welcome onto the stage Luke Van Middelaar, who has just had published in English his wonderful book, which we think is called Alarums and Excursions, but it might be Alarums and Excursions. If you don't know what that means, uh, Luke will explain in a second. The French edition, which came out at the end of last year, is called L'Europe qui improvise, which maybe is a tiny bit more easy to understand. Uh, as you can see by the profusion of um, post-it notes and bits of paper in my hand, I have lots of questions to ask Luke about this, this, this wonderful, wonderful book. Personally, please, it's been translated into English. You should write in English more often, Luke, that's for sure, since your English is impeccable anyway. Um, uh, and what a shame it didn't come out in the early part of 2016. It might have informed the Brexit debate in my country uh, in a very significant and influential way. But enough of that. So first of all, what, what, where does this expression, alarums and excursions, come from? Well, alarums and excursions is, is a stage direction from Elizabethan theatre, so uh, Shakespearean times, and it, you know, it conveys the feverish mood uh, before action. So it is a sign for the actor that there will be skirmishes soon. It's like a sound for battle. And in a way that, that captures uh, what this uh, book is about, it is uh, well, uh, a chronicle, among other things, of 10 years of crisis politics uh, in the European Union. And, well, I guess we'll, we'll get into that later, Paul. Okay, right. And, um, but also, uh, what I try to do in this book is... is use a lot the metaphor of politics as a theater uh, with its uh, front stage, its backstage, its audience and its actors and protagonists and uh, the importance of the public light on Brussels and European politics as well. Okay, well, let's briefly go to first principles because I think we all know, we always think about Europe as a collection of countries which have different cultures, different histories, different traditions, different languages, different legal systems coming together. Uh, but you make the... Maybe the obvious point, but a point that's not made very often at the beginning of your book, to make the point that the member states have sort of joined the European Union for different reasons, and therefore they see the European Union in different ways. I think that point needs, needs underlining to begin this conversation. Look, So you say, and I quote, to France, Europe means the hope of rebirth, to Germany, the hope of redemption, to Belgium, the glue of national unity, to Spain, the return to democracy, to Poland, a return to the free West, and to Britain, the advantages of a market. I mean, that seems obvious to everybody in this room, uh, I suppose, but it's, it's true. We don't often appreciate the extent to which not just member states are different intrinsically, and rightly so. Why shouldn't they be? Uh, but at the same time, they have different sort of, sort of expectations and, and, and views of what the EU is all about. No, exactly. And it's one of the things, of course, just like you, I, I knew this more or less, what I was writing there, but it was one of the things that really struck me in, in the job I had as a speechwriter to Herman van Rompuy. Um, because, of course, when uh, my then boss he had to deliver a speech, where you try to grasp, I'm going to Slovakia, okay, what does Europe mean here? How does it resonate? And I found out, for countries I hardly knew that, well, even between, of course, as many here know, uh, between Slovakia and the Czech Republic, would be huge differences in the way how, how Europe is, um, is perceived. So what you see is 
Europe is also a kind of projection screen of, of various desires or fears of various public opinions. And that's one reason um, why it's sometimes it's so difficult to have like a pan-European debate. I don't think we cannot have it, and there are certainly moments there is a European political public sphere, but, but it is um, it's not as easy, and you should at least take into account this, this I think, uh, intrinsic plurality of, yeah. of Europe. I think that's, that's a key word, the plurality of, of, of voices and experiences. Well, those of you maybe do not know Luke, by the way, or not read his bio in the conference program, he's a quite intriguing collection of individuals all wrapped in, in one body. He's, as you say, as you just said, Luke, a former speechwriter, Herman van Rompuy, but you're a philosopher, a, his, a historian, a writer, um, a thinker, clearly. And also, for those five years you're working for Mr. Van Rompuy, uh, sort of, you were at least a fly on the wall, if not an active participant. Um, one of the things you also say in the book, I will, I'll try not to make this, this interview a collection of quotes back to you, but I can't resist this one. So you say also, one clear conclusion this book arrives at is that the European Union is not moving towards a United States of Europe, a federal state with a single EU government above the national governments. Yet the pressure of events is such that Europe's nations are working ever more closely together and will continue to do so. The Union does not face a fateful choice between federalism and disintegration. That is a false dichotomy which only impedes public understanding and feeds distrust. That is a really, if I may say, it's a really insightful comment because the, the debate until, even now, and not just in the UK post-Brexit, is about these kind of two competing views or visions of Europe, right? Yeah, and I find it a bit frustrating because, of course, that's not at all what is happening uh, in, in, in front of our eyes in some cases. And um, this way of perceiving and reading the situation creates a lot of misunderstandings in a way. Well, it's clear for Brexit, this idea of a uh, necessary superstate growing out of this uh, functioned as a kind of bogeyman argument to the Brexit camp, and the other side is true as well. And, but also in Brussels, I think a lot of the thinking and writing uh, on the European Union, to some extent also in academia, is always about uh, what the EU should look like one day, eh? what the institutions, be it the Commission, the Parliament, or others, should look like, Whereas what I find more interesting is what it actually does, uh, what's going on in practice, uh, what are the real um, power relations between various institutions or between, between member states. And when you look at that a little bit more carefully, there is also some order in the, in the chaos, I would think. And, um, and that is, I think, worthwhile to, um, to put to pay more attention to that and to see, well, listen, well, why is everybody here uh, today uh, excited, uh, rightly so, about uh, the EU summit uh, elsewhere in town? Because that is where key decisions are taken. And national leaders, they will not commit harakiri one day and abolish their own country. They, but at the same time, as I say more or less in that quote, um, they will continue forced with external events and public expectations to work uh, more closely uh, together. And that's what makes it intricate, sometimes hard to read. But I think uh, there is a way to create some, some further clarity. And that is at least what I try and do in the, in the book. Throughout the book, you 
talk about this kind of, it's not so much a tension, but the kind of coexistence of, between two concepts, the politics of rules and the politics of events. Could you maybe, the benefit of the audience, maybe the first one is pretty obvious, but try and explain maybe is also how, how it comes, bumps up against the politics of events, as you call it. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Basically, politics of rules is what Brussels is good at. Huh? Uh, build a market, uh, design rules for whatever product standards, uh, uh, trade, etc., which is a marvelous system and which um, can also function because f- for rulemaking you can take the time. You can take huh, between a, a commission, green book, white book, and the day when it finally gets in the, into the journal officiel, it can be like five, six, seven years. Huh? So great, and we should definitely continue. But the European Union in the past decade has been, uh, let's say, faced and confronted with a number of situations where collectively... Uh, we had to act quickly uh, when Greece was about to go bankrupt, uh, like now nine years ago, when Russia invaded Ukraine five years ago, when the migration crisis erupted. These were moments which required fast decisions. Well, take Greece. Uh, They were not going to do a first uh, green paper and a white paper on whether or not a country should be allowed to go bankrupt. There was 48 hours to find 750 billion euro in that famous weekend, some of you will remember here, of May 2010, say during migration crisis. Uh, there were these kind of moments. And the, that type of stark, controversial decisions uh, require not only more speed, but also a different kind of political leadership, a different kind of legitimacy, um, where you cannot only ground the, the, the collective decisions on the basis, okay, we have had a great expert meeting, um, 28 national officials, the commission with the proposal, etc. It cannot only be on the basis of expertise or, or rules, but it really requires, uh, let's say, strong political conviction and debate. And I think here the, the migration crisis is perhaps the clearest case because, well, if you're faced with, uh, as the EU was, uh, in the autumn of 2015 with uh, hundreds of thousands of people crossing your borders, that was definitely an event in the sense of event politics of, of a very great magnitude. And um, then you cannot come up with a kind of technocratic, old-style Brussels machinery with all its talents, um, but kind of solution as a quota which you can use for fish quota, uh, it doesn't work with such uh, with, with people quota, refugee quota, asylum quota, because it's, it's just more an issue which um, is, again, much more controversial, um, a topic of deep uh, divisions within societies, between societies, so at least there you should first establish the principle okay, we, it, that it is a collective responsibility to take that exam. So this... Um, I see this as a, as a shift of a European Union built and having in its DNA to do rules politics, should continue to do so. But now, in view of the world around us, uh, external strategic challenges, also developing a capacity to improvise uh, and, to, and to deal with sudden unexpected events. And I think it's very important. It's still f- fragile, mm. but you can see some of the signs and uh, it's, uh, it would be good to build further on them. 
Well, you also say, maybe a link to that last point, uh, Luke, that the Brussels image of itself is two fundamental ideas have become entwined. I'm quoting you back again, your words. Uh, Europe as a peace project and Europe as a power project. Now, these two don't necessarily have to be in conflict, obviously, or mutually exclusive. But are you suggesting that the, the, the peace project is, is well established and well accepted and ingrained in the kind of DNA of the European project, whereas the, Europe as a power project is much newer and much more, less obviously entrenched? Yeah, obviously so. It's not a big scoop to say that. I think that's uh, that's all around the, these days. Even and there's there's a kind of uh, also from political leadership, um, Macron, but even to some extent in Germany, the realization that in today's world uh, of Xi Jinping and Putin and Erdogan and to some extent Trump, uh, Europe needs to also to be able to act as a power and. Macron calls it sovereignty and, and uh, others call it differently. But I think there's the same intuition uh, that um, the world has changed and that uh, the old ways of doing um, no longer suffices to, to deal with um, what we see today. And, uh, well, I mean, you can take the, the China paper, which yeah. I guess many in the room have, have seen here. Uh, from from ten days ago, from the Commission, also a topic tonight, of course, at the EU at the EU summit, where you see that shift in a way also um, towards a more realist approach in, in in reading international relations. Okay, it seems that also that it's um, the member states themselves had difficulty agreeing on this idea for improvising in the case in the in, in instances of, of crisis. Um, the institutions are not quite sure which role to play. Uh, and public opinion, surely, even uh, people in this room who are well-versed in EU stuff, uh, find, find it kind of confusing about who's in charge, who takes the lead. As you say throughout the book, there's no single leader in Europe, although obviously Mrs. Merkel has a head start. But, and so the division of responsibility and power is, is not obvious, is it? No, it isn't. Um, but I think we can create more clarity if... Uh, the main actors um, have a better self-understanding of, of what they're actually doing on stage. And I think there is also a learning uh, curve on, on all sides. I think uh, in the past 10 years, um, let's take first the Commission and then national leaders, but the Commission in a way has had to deal with a more powerful European Council um, and has had to learn on the way that for the most political initiatives, it needs the backing and the, and, the, and the legitimacy that the joint national leaders can convey. You cannot go against them. And by the way, of course, uh, and I can say that to a Brussels audience, uh, the, the veneered, almost holy uh, Jacques Delors in this town, he knew this very well. That to get through his most innovative, his most daring plans, he needed to first go see Helmut Kohl and François Mitterrand, and then he would he would uh, he would present it. So I think what we need is is a good interplay between the Commission and the European Council in that respect. But also, uh, if I, uh, here I can say on the other side of the road, in a way, they also have had to learn national leaders that they are also playing on a European stage, and they didn't realize. Eh? Um, this makes me also think about the start of, of the Euro crisis, for instance. Huh? It was, uh, of course, a lot of uh, shaky and improvised responses to something which was not supposed to happen. Um, but where also 
at the start, the communication was very uh, shaky, and uh, national leaders or, or ministers didn't re really realize that they were not only playing for their home audience, as it were, uh, but A, there were also, there was this kind of anonymous, hard to grasp sphere called the markets, which they didn't understand, they had to learn to deal with, and also public opinions at large, so that decisions uh, taken in, in Germany were followed intently in Greece and vice versa. So there was this, um, slowly was dawning upon them, and I, and I was there indeed at the time, that, okay, this is actually a new political space in where we're operating, I thought it was quite fascinating. Well, I'd like you to maybe clarify a bit more is whether you think this capacity to to improvise, to take the French title of your book, uh, is developing, and whether it's a intrinsically good or a bad thing, drilling down on again on the, your definition of, uh, of action, of, of politics, of, uh, of events. Uh, it, this is not played out within a specific framework. It, in, it occurs when the framework itself is put to the test in the extreme case by war or, or disaster. It's what matters is getting a grip on unforeseen events, which suggests by definition that there are no existing rules or parameters or even, you know, re, you know behavioral patterns in the past that that necessarily apply going forward. So what is your judgment on the, on the, the member states, the heads of government, the heads of state and government, to, to adapt to crises and to learn from their experiences? Well, I use this word uh, improvisation also, on the, in, by the way, in the English subtitle, it's improvising politics on the European stage. Um, of course, it's a very ambiguous term, and um, that's why I put it there. Um, so people indeed ask me, so is this positive, is it supposed to be positive or negative? Huh? And uh, of course, improvisation is acting in the moment, and it can be for, let's say, for bad reasons, because you are ill-prepared, you haven't done your homework, uh, you should have looked a little bit further ahead, um, seeing, well, to take an EU example, uh, three million refugees in, in camps and, and Jordan and, uh, and Lebanon, Perhaps you might have given it the thought that, that these people one day might start walking, if I can say so. So there, if you're improvising, that, is, that you have some, done something wrong. But my point is there's also situations in life where improvisation is a talent or requires a talent because some things that happen are really unexpected. The whole... Uh, risk of financial contagion, as we now all call it, uh, financial crisis spreading from one, one country to the next within the EU, it was completely unforeseen. Nobody had ever given that a thought. And in those moments, to be able to improvise, it's like in the theatre or in jazz music, is, is a very important quality. It's that you're, you can show what you can do in the moment. And I think that is a very uh, political quality of, of political leadership, where Politicians, of course, also get tested. Uh, to conclude on that improvisation, if you allow me, Paul, I've, well, the book is full of all kinds of quotes, but uh, I also have a writer from Miles Davis, and um, he once said, I'll play it first, and I'll tell you what it is later. And basically, that's what this book is trying to do. So looking, okay, guys, we've had 10 years of this crisis politics. Now, perhaps about time that we step back and we see some coherence in all of that. Because even if 
of course, there's various crises and, and some of it has played out in, 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 in banking circles and there's a whole uh, specific uh, financial crowd in the markets dealing with that and then there was a crisis with Russia and there you get the geopolitical crowd getting uh, excited and then refugees and Brexit and so on. But in a way, in all these moments, uh, the EU was confronted with some of its limits, uh, confronted with um, limits of its previous way of doing. It was tested. It had to face issues of borders, even of finitude, huh? yeah. of, of the risk of dying, if I can say so, huh? like the panic after Brexit or at some moments of the Euro crisis, were also very strong moments where, and I remember Varumpa, yeah, he very often used that expression, we're in a mode of survival. Mm -hmm. And that was completely new. And in a way, it is also um, emancipating that something conceived at the start, perhaps, of course, with high political aims, but then again, as a, more of a technocratic apparatus, feels that it also has a life of its own which, of course, you feel more clearly when you know that they can also end. But, how, I mean, how could um, the EU leadership, whoever it or she, he or she is, um, deal with that? There will always be unforeseen circumstances, which, by definition, are difficult to foresee. Um, again, Thank you, you granted <laughs> that point. <laughs> it's a very philosophically important point. Uh, one, another quote back at you. There's a, you say, there's a great desire among the political leadership of the Union to break free of the permanent state of emergency, the umpteenth last chance summit, the continual threat of confusion and opportunism. The heartfelt cry of Angela Merkel during the Council of, European Council of June 2017 when she said, enough of crisis management. The hour of strategic choices has come and that is exactly what we are doing in Europe along with Paris and so on and so on. But so there's obviously an acknowledgement and a frustration, a desire to, to move on from this constant, as you say, uh, dealing with these unforeseen circumstances. Um, what, what signs do you see that there are new, whatever you want to call it, it's not even procedures, but ways of, of doing political business at the highest level, developing, emerging, now on the back of at least, say, 10 years of crisis since the, the financial crisis of 2007, 2008? Well, I think one, one uh, clear sign is, uh, we just already mentioned it, the debate on, on China. Hmm? Right, okay. uh, I think that is uh, a crucial development, um, that leaders are having a strategic discussion on China tonight. I mean, they've asked for it for quite a long time. It has been also quite a while. And... Um, Everybody understands now with the pace of events and how they're unfolding. I mean, uh, we're seeing crazy things now. Uh, the United States putting pressure on the German government not to uh, go for Huawei in 5G and, and all these things where you see that, let's say, economic considerations and geopolitical and, and, and security considerations uh, come together, get kinds of intertwined. Nobody quite knows how to cut those knots mm. and well there you need a more strategic view uh, I'm not saying they're going to deliver on that tonight because of course there's Brexit and what is urgent always trumps what is only important as we know and, uh, but the fact that it's there I think it's, it, it's, it's a good sign it's something that can be built upon and that's why I see this improvisation as a kind of beginning if freeing of the system 
or developing, let's say, a capacity to act, but what should be added is a further capacity to, to look ahead. Gouverner, c'est prévoir. To govern is to, to, to look ahead. And that is uh, difficult. Um, also in view of what we discussed at the beginning, the, very, well, the whole plurality of what countries, our member states, expect from Europe. But the, let's say, the cohesiveness or the... Or the or a greater unity can therefore only come a from outside pressure which we all face and perhaps over time also from a stronger um, inner realization that even if we're all so different in this uh, Europe, European space there's also quite a lot we share hmm? well it sounds um paradoxical, even perverse to, to, to suggest or to make the assertion that, that Europe's leaders avoid acting politically when there are a bunch of political leaders around a table um, engaging in politics. Uh, but you use, for example, uh, the example of the, the deal with Turkey over migration, uh, where you said this, and there's a very choice phrase you use, it led to the loss of Europe's geopolitical innocence. In other words, and you say elsewhere in the book, I'm not quite sure the phrases you use, the metaphors you use, that Europe had to get its hands dirty, all that, you know, where's that effect? So do you think that um, Europe has been a bit too coy, a bit too sanctimonious in the past and, and, and avoided realpolitik, which you also refer to in the book, but is now finally coming to the realization that it has to get involved in, in that kind of politics as well? Yes, absolutely. And I think that's, uh, that's good. I'm not against that. Um, quite to the contrary. In a way, it also brings, uh, uh, brings back to the point of peace versus power um, image and, and, and project. Because the original idea of the peace project, of course, was that the EU is only the beginning. Huh? The rest of the world will follow. We're just leading the way to a new global order. And this was true in the 1950s. It was, in a way, again true in the 1990s, that very optimistic decade and to some extent into the th 2000s. But I think since 2008, since the financial crisis, since also the start of turmoil in our own region, don't forget 2008, of course, was also the year of the Russia-Georgia war uh, as a kind of prelude to, to, to issues with Ukraine and Russia and all that. Since a decade, we realize the rise of China, that we are not the avant-garde of humanity. We are a historic exception and we'll have to work hard, perhaps even fight to defend ourselves. And even the German political leadership, which of course has always eschewed these issues of hard power, feeling uncomfortable about it, about them, unlike the French. Uh, I was quite struck by a quote from Zygmar Gabriel, the previous, uh, or one of the previous bosses of the SPD in Germany, who said, I think a year ago or so, in a world of carnivores, we Europeans cannot be the only vegetarians, basically. Well, it's quite obvious, but from the mouth of a leading German SPD, moreover, politician, I thought, I thought that was striking. That means that uh, there is a growing awareness that, indeed, we will have to make our hands dirty, and a values-only approach will not allow us you know, even to, to defend these cherished 
values always. And there will be dilemmas. There will be tragic dilemmas. And it will not be nice. Like, well, if you go back to the Turkey deal, the dilemma was, okay, do we want to send, continue to send the message of charity? Yes. Because there was also an element of, of charity in that deal, if you look at the details. But also we need to, A, make sure that we protect security, and B, we do not want extremist populists to win national elections. That is something that we are here again, we are here in the fall of 15, spring of 16, let's say a year before the French presidential elections, Marine Le Pen and all that. That's a calculation that pretty much, of course, was in the head of, of Mrs. Merkel and, and Juncker and Tusk when they sealed that deal with Turkey, knowing that perhaps legally and ethically it was not 100% as you would in an ideal world like it, but realizing that, okay, this is the, again, this is the world as it is. And that is where we have to take our decision on the basis of political judgment. Well, throughout the book, whether you're talking about the, the migration crisis, the Greek debt crisis, the Russian-Ukraine crisis, uh, and others, you do use these very provocative uh, phrases. Uh, you say things like the pressure to reach agreement is stronger than the demand for clarity. Um, you say we Europeans do not play to win but to minimize losses. These are really obviously provocative comments. What, what, do, you, what do you mean by that when we, you say we prefer to minimize losses than play to win? Well, I think that that is one of my accidental aphorisms now that I hear it back from your mouth, uh, probably in the, in the Russia chapter, um, where I compare American and Russian and European views of history, huh? where the American view, basically, it's right against might. We Americans are, are leading humankind to democracy and capitalism and right against might. For the Russians, they have, of course, a much more cynical view of history, of politics. It's basically might against might. Uh, power play only. Trump does that a bit as well, by the way. But the Europeans, I say, it's the tragic realization that very often in life it is right against right. And making a, a choice knowing that Either way, you will lose something, and then you just want to minimize loss. So it's perhaps less heroic sometimes, eh? or, and it gives less enthusiasm, but it is also a, a wise view of history, and it's in the context of the Minsk agreement to those who are into these things that um, Chancellor Merkel and President Hollande arranged in a way with the Ukrainian and Russian presidents, and which set a ceasefire, and it was... Well, it was under critique um, because it seemed to be giving in also to, to Putin and these rascals in, in eastern Ukraine. But then again, it was also about saving lives and making sure that the bloody civil war that was going on there would stop. And uh, I think that is a respectable. Uh, and I'm, in a way, with that small sentence, and what I'm trying to do is to provide, yeah, a rationale, something that we can be proud of as well, and we do, should not only see that as a uh, second best option. It is a proper view of, of politics and of history, and where we Europeans have our own historic experience uh, 
of these past centuries, which is also um, embedded in, in, in how the EU works. And I, I think that's fascinating. Okay. One last comment from me, or quote from me, Luke, and you can react to the spot. You've had an easy job, Paul. You've As just a, been reading my I book. I know, it's wonderful. To, it's true. At least it proves I've read the book anyway, um, not just the, the press release. Um, so my final quote back to you. If the union is to win out and retain the support of a majority of the public, then it will have to curb the theological discourse and free itself from its dogmas. This means it must cease to long for a federal future that is not yet uh, within reach and stop regretting that for now we have to make do with national governments, parliaments, identities. You touched on that at the beginning. The time for banishing unbelievers is past. Suspicion of Brussels' missionary zeal must be dispelled, preferably by means of clear signals. Space for doubts and objections must be cleared and these must be given a visible and functional role in the system of government as it has meanwhile unfolded in reality. So maybe uh, by way to finish off this fascinating discussion, all thanks to you, how sort of optimistic are you in broad terms about not just the, the survival of the European project, but it's it actually growing and learning from its mistakes and being a, a bolder world player? Well, let's say... Uh, I. I try to go for a maximum of optimism within the realm of, of being realistic. And in a way, we have a, a, a race going on between external forces, China and others are mentioned, which forces to do more together, and internal, some fracturing fault lines and, and, and forces as well. Um, eating away in the legitimacy of the EU, whereas at the same time we all feel that more is needed of it. And I cannot predict the outcome of that race between these two conflicting forces, but I sincerely hope, and I do not think that it is impossible, uh, if we, again, look more clearly at the EU, how it is, how it works, be less ideological about it, uh, that the forces pushing for more integration will win out. But we have to be really clear-headed about it. Thank you. Thank you, Luke, very much indeed.